And, and Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, a good Sunday morning to you. Good morning to you, Scott. You know, I always look forward to shows where we bring somebody back and see how things have gone. And then, you know, in March of uh, 2019, we had uh, Mallory... Oteriano on the show, who at that time was running Kind Apparel. And since then, the company's gone through a metamorphosis. It's called Your now, Y-O-U-E-R, and they're doing all kinds of interesting community-oriented kinds of things. And, and I don't know much about it. I know what I've read in the newspaper, and it seems pretty exciting. And I'm glad that you have a relationship with her so we could bring her back on the show and learn more about what's happening in her her business world. I thanks Arnie. I agree. I mean, Mallory is kind of one of those hidden gems in Missoula of of business and community leadership that really considers all aspects of what it means to to start a brand and to run a brand, and you know how that impacts the environment, sustainability, into you know employees and, and helping with them. It's just. She really has a great head on her shoulders and her let her, you know, her most recent endeavor uh, in terms of crowdfunding um, for her new factory here in Missoula, an assembly plant in Missoula, is just astounding. So we're going to learn a lot in this call today. Sure. And we're also going to learn about how COVID has affected her because it's affected her, you know, dramatically. Absolutely, Arnie. Anyway, I really appreciate it. We'll be back after this with our guest. Mallory Otariano with Ewer. Back after this. All right, Arnie, we are back with our guest, Mallory Otariano with Ewer. With your what? <laughs> with your apparel, right? I mean, for our, for our listeners, we had Mallory on the show in March of 2019. And at that time, it was kind apparel that you were using as your as your label and your brand. And now we're Fast forward to, uh, you know, October of uh, 2021, and it's your Y-O-U-E-R apparel. So what's happened since we last talked with you, Mallory? Wow. Well, <laughs> thanks for having a chat with me. A lot has happened. Yeah, I rebranded last year, and the company is now called Ewer. Like, Why'd you do you? that? Why'd you do that? A couple of reasons. Um, I started Kind Apparel in spare bedroom, sewing things myself, selling them on Etsy. And that is just totally not the business today. It's like a community of tens of thousands of customers. And um, this was just kind of like a nod to this community of people and kind of a way to elevate beyond just that homegrown brand that I ran for many years and a big solid step into the future. Um, I was also running into some pretty obvious trademark situations, trying to trademark kind, kind bar, trademark almost every retail category. So that was kind of um, a hurdle as well. But it was mostly just an acknowledgement of the brand today not being the brand that it was five years ago when I started, six years ago when I started. So, yeah. So the brand has morphed into your apparel. And what does it look like now compared to in its uh, previous incarnation. It's funny in a way it's been kind of full circle, <laughs> kind of done it all. Like I'm actually right now 
um, working out of my spare bedroom again. Um, it's my home office. And since kind of starting in a very cottagey way, selling things in my spare bedroom then and selling them online and morphed through that and into working with contract manufacturers and had office space and employees. And as of last year, like the whole dynamic has changed. We've grown so, so much, but really tightened down the whole model. And so I'm on this uh, model right now where I have zero employees. It's me and one other contracted gal. And I have a couple agencies that I do a variety of contracted things with. Um, We have all fulfillment being done under contract and we have two facilities making our things right now, cutting and sewing things. Um, But we're gearing up to build a small production facility here in Missoula or outside Missoula in the Missoula Valley area. So we can bring um, apparel manufacturing to this area. Well, Mallory, real, real quickly though, just to mention for us, you know, starting six years ago from absolutely nowhere, zero to what you've built today, how many clients and customers do you have? How many States and countries are they in? I mean, that's, incredibly impressive. I know a little bit of this, but I'd like you to kind of share that with the audience. Yeah, totally. So I guess really the whole foundation of it was nine years ago in 2012. That's kind of when I bought this sewing machine and started sewing in my parents' basement. And then six years ago, turned it into a real company, quit my job and um, started that way. And I was just kind of traveling around the country and going to events and selling online. And now we have uh, probably 15,000 customers and carried in about 20 retailers across the country, very heavily focused in the Mountain West. We have our largest populations of customers in Montana and Alaska and Washington and Colorado. Um, But last week we had a big product launch and um, we sold over a thousand dresses in almost two days and shipped those all over the world. We had orders going to India. We had things going to Mexico and Great Britain and Germany and Norway. And uh, that's pretty exciting. We have uh, about 7% of our sales go to Canada. So that's definitely like our largest international partner. So we talked about this before, but um, for our listeners, you went to UMass Amherst and got a degree in in uh, fine arts in architecture and design. So Good memory, Arnie. Yes. So what happened from that? You know those those roots to now because you're not doing you know fine arts and architecture at the moment. No, no, I'm not. Um, that degree was sort of a decision that teenage me made um <laughs> yeah. like everybody has to choose their future like, like when i was a pre-med student yeah i understand <laughs> totally i growing up i was super creative and i always wanted to be an artist you know how you ask kids what their dream job is mine was an artist so i always knew that that was going to be my future but then when i got to school i was like well artists don't make money how am i going to make money oh i'll be an architect then i can kind of still be an artist and make money Um, So that was how I landed on that degree, which was just like not the right field for me, not very interesting for me. Um, And I worked in that field kind of briefly afterwards. Um, I did a whole bunch of things between college and starting this thing myself. Um, I worked in agricultural research. I 
worked uh, as like a preschool teacher. I worked as an assistant at a law school um, doing building and construction management and architectural design. And um, the whole time I was just like, all of my effort, no matter how hard I work, is benefiting somebody else. I'm benefiting myself the same amount, whether I put in 10% or 110%. How can I actually be able to benefit from my own effort and energy? And so, yeah, that was starting my own business. So was what was the seminal event that made you, you know, everybody has to have something that either snaps, popples, you know, pops or crackles that makes you move from one thing to another. Was there a specific thing that happened that aided in that uh, transformation? Yeah, there were kind of two things. So one thing was I was like building up this online clothing business. It was mostly a part-time job while I was working this other job. And I found myself just like trying to get my work done as quickly as possible at my job so that I could leave early and go home and do my own stuff. And I really was so much happier when I was making things versus at my job. But I think the other big motivator was um, I was matching my income selling clothes online. And so I was like, why am I doing this thing that I don't like doing at all? That's not bringing me any joy when I'm making just as much money doing this thing that I totally love. So walk me through this. You mentioned before, and I thought it was a a fantastic number. You sell a thousand dresses or a thousand items. So walk me through what happens. You get an order for a thousand things. What happens next? Because you have no employees and no factory. And so how does the magic happen? Yeah. So 1000 dresses came from like seven or 800 people. Um, so there's hundreds of different orders to manage. Yeah. And um, I guess the start of that is like 100% of the marketing effort is me. I don't have any marketing agency or contractors in that front. So I'm doing most of the product photography and marketing, and then we get those things sold. And we are actually working with a local business, Vim and Vigor here in Missoula, and they are functioning as our warehouse and fulfillment center. So, right. so you're working with orders, Michelle Yui and her people. Yeah, totally. Right. Yep. So all of those orders go into their system and they have a whole storage system at their facility of all of our products and they pick and pack all those orders. Postal service comes and picks them all up and they go out into the world. Um, and then there's residual returns and exchanges and all that stuff. And and you've designed these dress, the, these dresses, these items. And they're in stock in this warehouse. So who yes. makes them? Oh, so we have currently two contracted facilities that we work with, one in Los Angeles and one outside Portland, Oregon. And so depending on the product, those are made at either facility. Those dresses in particular are made in Oregon. And those are delivered to our warehouse. Um, the fabric for those, that product is actually pretty interesting because it's 100% U.S. made and 100% recycled. All of the fabric is made in the US, it's milled in North Carolina, and then it's uh, dyed and brushed there and shipped to our factory in Oregon where they cut and sew everything and then ship it up to Missoula. And why are these seven, 800 people buying your thousand dresses? What's your market niche or market pitch or what? what is it about what you're doing that allows this to happen? Probably a lot of things, but if I were to pinpoint one thing that I think I do really well is provide tools for people to express their personality with. And these clothes are tools to express your personality. They're very bold and bright and colorful and super unique. Like you can't really wear them out 
without people stopping you and asking you about them. So it's certainly like, it takes a certain kind of woman to want to um, wear this type of stuff. And a lot of people are really thirsty for that and looking to express themselves and stand out from the crowd and support small woman-owned business, doing business in a responsible and sustainable way. So I think there's kind of this perfect storm of um, the consumer habit and the tool that I provide. One of the things I noticed when I've seen your advertising is that the models, if you will, that you use in your advertising are look like they've just been picked off the street. I mean, they're not they're not your traditional slender, gorgeous, perfect, you know, models that you see in a lot of advertising. They look like normal, you know, people that are using and enjoying your product. Obviously, that is a, a planned out and thought out strategy on your part. Yeah. And I mean, you're spot on. They are. They are just average people. Um, I don't use modeling agencies. I source customers mostly. I source people who are already fans of the brand. Um, or sometimes I'm looking for a specific look or um, a specific size. But yeah, I usually source my digital community on Instagram and poll people to see if they want to show up for a shoot um, and, and do my best to make sure that we're representing um, everybody and a good selection of sizes and um, different types of bodies. But yeah, they're just average women. And it takes a certain type of confidence to just like show up as a non-model with a whole bunch of strangers and take your right. clothes off in an right. alley, which is what we did a couple of weeks ago. And is your Instagram following where your customers come from? Or do you have other, other social media? So, so nope. other About 35% of my revenue is coming from Instagram. Wow. Yeah. So now you're moving forward and you're going to, you're thinking about somewhere in the greater Missoula area, you know, either building or, or, uh, you know, taking over through rental, a facility to manufacture. How's that going to be financed? And, and what, what's your thinking about what that will do for you that you don't already have going on for you? I think I'll answer the second part of that first, because that's okay. a good uh, segue into the next part. But Last year, it's kind of a long answer, but last year experienced enormous supply chain setbacks, um, which prompted me to change the way my team was organized and close down our office and really get very lean because due to factory closures and the state of the world, I went seven months with no inventory, which basically meant many months with no revenue, which is super hard when you're a cash-driven business. Um and I realized that putting the most important piece of my brand, which is product in somebody else's hands was like really challenging and a right. huge liability. So um, when, and every everything that could have gone wrong last year went wrong. There was a lawsuit. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damaged product. It was just like this chaotic, awful situation. Um, and so I decided to not go through that again and start actively working towards building my own thing. And if that meant staying small, but just being far more profitable, that was totally the path that I wanted to take. Um, so the financing part of it is pretty tricky as a young person who's been self-employed my whole career, basically. Um, I am not a very attractive candidate to a bank for traditional bank lending. Um, I've definitely had some luck and met some really awesome bankers and um, just sort of cash strapped this throughout the whole thing. But one way to kickstart it, kickstart the funds for this that I just completed 
today is actually the last day of it, was a crowdfunding campaign, but a really interesting spin on it. So for the last month, I've been running what I've called a CSA, which in my definition stands for community-supported apparel. It's traditionally traditionally agricultural situation where you basically pre-buy things to give that business the farm operating capital. Um, So I did this with clothes. So over the last 30 days, I raised $105,000 by pre-selling a whole bunch of specially curated things, like this whole package of products that I designed specifically for this campaign. So people, we had, I think, 540 people contribute $105,000. And that's like a nice little cash infusion to be able to go out and secure a building with. Now, have you have you gone to uh, Dave Glazer and seen anybody at Community Development Corporation? Those folks. Uh, I have not spoken. No, I have not spoken with them. Because they 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 started off. They, he's been a guest on our show before. He started yeah. off as a community bank for women, and they provide loans for people that don't have that are like you that are that mm-hmm. the traditional banks won't lend to because you don't have the traditional kind of collateral uh, available. And uh, you know he's got he's got a lot of funding for that, so you may want totally. to. You may. Yeah, and I think I'm this, giving you on air advice, but but that's a good place to go and and take a look and see what they may be able to do to provide you with loan or loan guarantees or risk insurance or some other things like that that might fit in, given what you know, what took place last year for you. Totally. You're talking about MoFi, right, Arnie? Yeah, MoFi, exactly. They they used to be called the Community Development Corporation. But oh, you're right. okay, They're yeah, I MoFi. have definitely spoken. I've spoken with MoFi at length. Yeah. Okay, good. I think there's, yeah. Um, there's definitely going to be equity partnership involved in kind of phase two of whatever sure. this is that I'm embarking on. <laughs> um, but I think something that was really important to me without, I mean, granted, a lot of these higher risk loans have incredibly high interest rates, which isn't super advantageous. But part of the interesting thing for me in funding this via community for at least the beginning stage is that you inevitably generate brand loyalty and you have, now I have not a bank who's backing me. I have the bank of 540 people who want me to succeed and who are rooting for me and who are going out into the community and telling the story, which is super cool. And for for our listeners who don't understand crowdfunding, what do these people get for their money? A variety of things. Um, So crowdfunding is basically pre-selling product. So they're committing money, for something that they're going to get at a later date. And I had a whole selection of stuff. I had physical products, like this dress that I mentioned earlier. It's our total bestseller. We designed a color and print specific for the CSA. Um, So that was available at a limited edition legging print that was available, a collaboration with another, uh, two collaborations with other brand friends of mine. Um, One couple of things we did were, Uh, custom wedding dresses. I sold five custom wedding dresses where um, I'm going to make white fleece dresses for five women. Um, We sold raffle tickets for a spacesuit. So I'm going to design and hand paint this sort of uh, boiler suit for a winner at the end of this, I'll choose. And then we had funny little perks like name a print, name a product, uh, name the bathroom. (laughs) which we have uh, the uh, recipient of the bathroom name on this call with us, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it. a lot of, yeah, Scotty's <laughs> potty coming up. 
Um, it works. But yeah, a lot of just tangible, but then intangible, funky things that you couldn't buy normally. And refresh my memory. You do or do not manufacture or, or make clothes for men? We do not. Right. Well, I mean. Well, people that identify as women. Yeah. If you are adventurous um, you in your style sensibilities, then we might make clothes for you. Yeah, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have clarified it. Yeah, then. what are you doing, Artie? You're not showing. You're not woke. I'm not woke enough. I like to say we make clothes for original individuals. Well, that's probably pretty so, good because I, I was looking it. through. I was looking through um, Esquire, I think, the other day, and I was looking at some of what I would think are male models wearing clothes that would that would be more unisex looking kind of outfits. And there are obviously people out there who you know. Who, regardless of how they identify, end up wearing kind of unisex-looking uh, outfits, like right. Will Smith's son, for example, dresses like that. Totally, you know, and, and it looks totally. very fashionable. Uh, I just saw Dune, and the and the outfits that they had uh, um, Timothy Chalamet in could have been unisex outfit. Men or women could have worn the same outfit: a, a tunic with sort of flowing uh, a flowing uh, robe over it. It could have been worn by men or women. Right. So, mm -hmm. totally. so I like and your, your I like your definition in this changing world. Yeah, totally. And we now, certainly have had people who identify as men buy our clothes and right. wear them out and about. I've known a few who, and they say it's very comfortable too. So <laughs> you may be married to one. <laughs> anyway, um, Mallory, with this new structure or with the, 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 the factory going, you know, ultimately going online. How does that impact your business structure, right? Like, how does that managed? Like, how do you envision it being managed? How do you envision things like a queue being developed so that, you know, uh, who who start who goes first, right? What product is manufactured first? I'm sure you, I know you, and you probably thought this way, thought through this ten ways to Sunday. So maybe share a little bit of that insight. Yeah, so a lot of it we do already. All of the production planning is already done in-house. I'm very grateful to have somebody on my team. Her name's Alicia, who has extensive production and planning experience in this industry at a variety of levels. Um, most recently worked for like a $50 million company doing planning and production. So she gets that. And all of that planning and timeline stuff, we're already doing in-house. So we're creating that whole supply chain of the product and then just basically handing the cutting and sewing to another factory. Um, so I think the challenge lies mostly in staffing this factory, not necessarily, I mean, there are for sure going to be efficiencies that we develop and understand more, but staffing and creating a training program, I think will probably be our biggest challenge given that there are no active wear it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, there are none. So it's an industry that doesn't exist here at all. So the likelihood of finding people with commercial sewing experience is not super high. So we'll inevitably be training those people. It'll be new for me to kind of be a little bit more on the floor with management for the time being. Um, but in terms of profit, it's really going to drastically change our business model. Making things in the U.S. is really expensive. Um, we all know that, but it's it just eats into profits so drastically. And when mistakes are made, we're often not finding out about the mistakes until they've already wasted 
tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of product. Um, and if we made mistakes in-house, those are going to be caught so much faster. And we'll also be learning from them and benefiting from our mistakes in a way that we're and not. And we know right that now. shipping is just eats into your, your margins immensely. Totally. And we're shipping things around a lot. We have fabric coming from the East Coast, going to the West Coast to get printed, then going up the West Coast to get cut and sewn, and then coming over to us. So, so there is a ton of shipping built into our supply chain right now, which kind of sucks. So how is this how is this collective being going to be managed? Meaning, it, because you're, is it going to be very similar to how you currently manage? Except you're going to, uh, is there a board? Is there, or is it just, hey, we're a private company, we're going to manage like we traditionally manage? Yep, we're going to be a, a privately held company still. Um, I do have sort of a informal group of, of ment mentors who I'll probably bring in a formal way together for a board of advisors as this grows, but we'll be structured super similar. Similarly, we'll have a, a plant manager who will sort of manage all the sewing people and cutting floor and all the production team. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it'll be slow to start. Like we're not, we have three phases of growth. So we're not jumping in by making a hundred percent of things in house. We're just bringing 30% of production here to start. So we'll be making um maybe five to ten thousand pieces here in the first year and then sort of building on that and understanding how we operate and what the function is and um yeah but ideally i will not be the manager of the facility i'll be the brand manager and then this facility will be sort of a separate partner underneath the brand so is the last is, is are you guys going to be manufacturing kind of assembling everything that you source from the printer and the suppliers or is that kind of the plan. Yeah. So we, yeah, we will be making a specific collection of products in house that will utilize a specific type of machinery. Um, that's sort of like the motivation of the phases because some of this equipment costs enormous amounts of money. So we'll be sure. bringing on our more expensive production as we go further along. But yeah, we'll basically be getting fabric on rolls and then we have huge cutting tables and we'll have all of our patterns and stack all of our fabric and start cutting everything and getting it all stitched up. Excellent. So where do you get, where do you get your creative ideas for what you're going to be doing next? How does that process work for you? A lot of them are just floating around in my head all the time. I have all these banks of ideas that I try to file things into, whether they're folders on a computer or little folders on Instagram when I see something I like, or have a bulletin board over here where I just have clippings of, colors I like. Um, but there's definitely a difference of there's, it's one thing to be spontaneously creative, but then when your creativity is responsible for generating money and has to exist in a timeline, it puts a different spin on it. And that was something I struggled with a little bit when I first started doing this, because I didn't really want all these timelines placed on my creativity. So now when I have to be creative and I'm not feeling super creative, I just go out and I ingest as much stuff as I can. I might spend a couple hours on Instagram just going down all these wormholes, looking at stuff, getting inspired by stuff, going on the internet, looking at stuff, going to stores and shopping, taking trips and just kind of putting myself out to be a sponge for my environment and the things that I'm seeing. And yeah, it's kind of my process. It's interesting how in all of the creative arts, you go through periods where you're, you know, um, very, you know, creative and lots of good ideas happen and you go through you know, feast or famine kind of things. The same thing as writers, you know, with writer's block or, you know, musicians, singer, songwriters, 
when they're under the pressure to have to produce a new song for a new thing, it, it doesn't always work as well as, uh, as just the spontaneity. And um, totally. Yeah. And you, you see know, just, like the product of that being reflected by the experience of the creator during that creative time too. Like right now our fall collection is getting released in stages and it was all designed at the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, which ended up being a really creative time for me. And I think what's coming out right now in my brand is like the best, most creative stuff that I've ever put out. And it was actually created in this time of like scarcity where I wasn't really sure if I was going to be in business and I didn't like nobody knew what state of the world was, but it produced something right. really fun. Yeah. I was thinking about this last night because I went to see uh, um, the last James Bond movie, you know, no time, you know, no time to die. And and the, the song, the theme song was, that was okay. It's not going to win any awards. And I realized at the end, it was written by Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas. And then I realized that's a lot of pressure to go say, we need you to write a song that's named after this movie and the movie's going to get released at blah, blah, blah. And the song has to be done to be in the movie. And that is a, you know, that's different than, and then how most of the creative process. And I wonder, you know, if, as you get bigger, somebody comes along, some big, uh, you know, retailer comes along and says, we need a tunic, you know, in eight different colors for our, our fall season. And we need to have that by, you know, May for fall and uh, you know, how, how you're going to be able to function and, and, you know, as a, as sort of a victim of your own success. I would say I probably won't do it. <laughs> I've had a couple <laughs> situations like that. I don't know. It, it makes me think a lot about like why I left architecture was because I went into it thinking I'm going to design all these incredible structures. I'm going to be the Frank Geary of architecture in right. the 21st right. century here. And, uh, the reality of it was no, people needed a basement remodel or a bathroom and I did what they wanted. And when I started my own business, what I realized is like, nobody's telling me what to do or what to make. I'm making exactly what I want. And I love that. And that's a huge piece of the brand and I'll never sacrifice that. And it's come up several times. There's a large retailer that I work with that wants things a very specific way. And it's not necessarily the way that I'm making stuff. And I've just said, no, I won't change these things. And I won't do it that way. It's a lot easier. Until you uh, get investors. Yeah. Well, there's one of the I'll challenges. Only take on that... investors without voting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the power of no is very, power. Well, the power of no is very is incredibly powerful. To say no mm -hmm. to things is a lot harder than just to say yes all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, it totally is. And that's okay. It's your business. Mm -hmm. Mallory, do you feel like um there are, are there other kind of folks in the same space in other parts of the country trying things similar to how you're going to structure this? I mean, is there any inspiration in for what? stuff in house? Yeah. Well, in terms of the crowdfunding and the, you know, which I think is an incredibly creative way to go about this and then bringing it in house and how that really is a way for smaller businesses who are in this space to have greater quality control and also to help bring in, you know, deliver better margins, because ultimately that's what's going to happen. That's the goal. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, in all my research, as I was getting ready to launch this, I didn't find a single community funded factory that was out there on search engines. So I don't honestly think that has been done. Um, I'm sure there have been 
funds used to benefit something like that. But um, there are plenty of small brands in the U.S. making their own stuff in-house. And there are many of them in Montana, for certain. Uh, I think what is different about many of the ones that I know and respect is that they never outsourced like I did. And so it's kind of a difference. So they've sort of had the benefit of growing their brand while they're growing production. And they're just sort of buying what they need to facilitate and support the amount of growth that they're experiencing in retail. And so now I've sort of missed, there's sort of like this big gap for me in that where I couldn't handle it sewing in-house, couldn't handle the volume. So outsourced it to other factories. And now we're sort of like at this exponentially different point. And so building back into that is a little challenging. Um, but yeah, there are, I've been having really inspiring conversations with a number of brands. Um, okay. In particular, there's a company up in Alaska called Alpine Fit. And uh, she makes a lot of base layers in-house and has a really cool operation. So as is the case with many other people who are in this sort of space, have you thought about diversification into other product areas? I mean, as we all know, Nike started off with shoes and now they have, you know, and they've taken on things that they've gotten rid of. For example, they used to manufacture golf clubs and now they don't make uh, the equipment anymore, golf equipment. They still make all of the golf, you know, um, clothing and other sorts of things. So have you thought about ancillary products or related products that you might add on beside ones that are made out of cloth? Not a ton. At this point in time, I'm really focused on just apparel and growing to the extent that I can grow in apparel because I think there's still a lot of room for me to grow here. I think the diversification happens with this manufacturing facility where instead of growing by extending myself into different product categories, I'll grow by producing for other brands in this facility. And that is the type of diversification that I'm focused on at the moment rather than um, expanding beyond apparel. But I think apparel is just like a large umbrella, right? It could be hats, right. could be shoes. It can be so many different fun accessories to express. Right. You could, yeah. You could do purses or, you know, satchels and bags and whatever, but totally. Did I, did I understand what you just said that you may contract manufacture for other people like yourself? 100%. Yep. And that's a smart way also to expand, just like you're kind of doing now with Vim and Vigor, you would become the Vim and Vigor for other entrepreneurs who themselves are launching products and brands of their own. Totally. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I've already had some pretty exciting conversations with a variety of brands and a variety of sizes. So that's kind of phase three for us with sure. this production facility. But as you pointed out, and it's, uh, and it's surprising, actually, Scott was surprised, I'm surprised, that given all of the adventure outdoor activity in Montana, there isn't anybody here manufacturing in the state anything. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of small brands making their own stuff in-house, but I'm, that's, yeah. That's different. That's, that, the, yeah, but that's what different. you were six years ago. I'm saying no, totally. none of the companies totally. here have their own manufacturing operation. Nope. Oh, yeah, there's not. There's not a commercial active wear facility. It's amazing, actually, to think. Yeah, about. it is pretty amazing. I mean, there's there's like some variety of apparel manufacturing here, but like active wear requires specific skill set, very specific machines, and um, 
we're going to do it first, I guess. <laughs> have you have you thought about doing it somewhere else besides Missoula, Montana? I mean, we are kind of isolated from um, you know major metropolitan areas. And I've uh, thought a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought a lot about it recently too, as the real estate market seems to be so bleak. Um, there's just, I mean, I'm I'm ready to start this thing right now, and the big thing standing in the way is property. There's sure nothing that's going to work right now. And so just waiting for that thing. So yeah, I've thought a lot about going somewhere where there's more availability of space, more availability of skill and talent. And yeah, but I think there's something also really special to be said for like bringing something to a city that doesn't have any of that. Well, that's true. And, and, and the dirty little secret is that nice places everywhere are, are having the same issue as Missoula is facing, you know, these, all of these, you know, as urban areas get, you know, more problematic to live in for people, then they're looking for the, you know, the 20 best small towns to visit to to live in or the 20 best suburban community. And all those places that are nice that you would want to live in that would fit in with, you know, your, your you know, profile and your lifestyle are all expensive. I hear people all over the country complaining. You know, I hear you complaining mm-hmm. of Bozeman or Missoula. But you know what's happening here, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, or, uh, you know, some other place, Ann Arbor, Michigan, or, uh, you know, Boca Raton, every, every place that I, you know, it, is going through a similar phenomena. People want to go and move to nice places. And, uh, Absolutely. you know, and the COVID is COVID has facilitated a lot of that because people now can work from wherever they want to work. So we, we're seeing the influx here, but other places around the country are also experiencing it. People that are in the East Coast that don't necessarily know Montana and aren't going to just take that leap of faith are looking at Portland, Maine or, uh, you know, other towns and they're going through the same experience. Yeah, it's very true. It's actually amazing. So, yeah. Well, I think so that's also it, good. The one thing I was going to say is already is the, as the population, so folks start to move more toward Missoula, that might help with the workforce and the skilled workforce. Which yeah, I absolutely. Think is a big deal. It's, not, it's probably not yeah. going to help with the unskilled workforce, but it will help with the skilled workforce. Yeah, definitely. So what, it's what did like you learn? Outdoor... I, I want this what sort of con- consolidated, Mallory. Yeah. What did you learn from the COVID pandemic? Because the last time we talked, we were at the we were at the very early stage of that. So what did you learn? Yeah. Well. I guess, what did I, okay, I'm going to ask you a question then, uh-huh. clarified. What did I learn, like, personally, or what did I learn about running a business, or or just kind of running like, Running you know, a business, but also personally. I mean, you know, we all have had a, epiphanies during this COVID thing of some sort or another. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. life's too short that I'm going to do what I want when I get a chance to, you know, do it, or take this job and shove it. I'm not going to work here anymore. I mean, lots of people had these, uh, you know, a reaction to what's been going on because it's been a fundamental change in how we've lived our lives, you know, for as long as we've lived them. And so what, what, totally. are, those change, what are those changes that have affected you? Well, I definitely learned that in this business, I can do a lot more with a lot less than I had thought. Um, we've, we have no physical office space and there's two remote women managing this business right now. And um, we're going to grow by over 100% this year, uh, which is pretty cool. I think I realized that sort of, I have this idea 
which I think a lot of young entrepreneurs get caught up in a little bit, this sort of Silicon Valley idea of like scaling and massive revenue and selling and making a ton of money. And that's, that's not where I want to be anymore. I really want to focus on profit. I don't really care about doing this giant business. I care about running a very profitable business that offers something really special to the people involved in it. That was a big realization. Um, and I really realized like for the first time that I really deserved to own a lot of my own expertise. Like for a long time, I always thought because I didn't go to business school, I don't have an MBA. Like, am I really, I don't know, qualified to do some of these things, but I've totally realized that yes, 100% I am. And I've gotten to the point where I feel like I do know what I'm doing in some respects, a lot of stuff I make up, but um, it is definitely, yeah, I'm just like owning my expertise a little bit more. Think about think about Elon Musk. He didn't go to business school. He made thirty eight billion dollars last week. Totally. So, but I think I think you've 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 learned something that's very important. In my professional career, I had as many as two hundred plus people working for me, and I had a business when I started where there's only two of us, and I was the most profitable when I had two people. So bigger uh-huh. doesn't always mean better for your own personal quality of life or your own personal, you know, wealth accumulation for, you know, for yourself and for your, you know, for future generations. There there isn't no, there really is not necessarily at all a correlation between bigger is better. And in my case, other people I know, smaller, it turned out to be better. Because the volume and, and gross revenue is not necessarily the measurement of your happiness or your success. Well, and it also costs you a lot to build something. And then you're hoping for even more accelerated returns. You know, if you have if you have revenue, uh, you know, and you're a two-person operation, and then all of a sudden you're growing to 16, you gotta have you gotta take care of 16 families every single month and pay them and right. take care of them. And then all of a sudden you're the amount that you have to ma- you know produce or generate in terms of revenue and sales goes up tremendously. And and so you're making an investment at a time when you could be taking right. profits. And, yeah, and that's it causes always a lot of stress a, to grow like that. Yeah. And, and you know, if you're a public company, it's easier, but you're a privately run you know, operation. It's very hard to make that investment. And I've found often that the return isn't worth it. So yeah. that's just a, a bit of, uh, you know, looking, looking over a, a professional career that's, in my case, yeah. it's gone a lot of different ways, so. Mallory, totally. have, you, have you been surprised by the the outpouring of support from the community or is it, you know, because I think you have always placed a great deal of value on your customer base and relating to them. And so did any of this surprise you uh, or disappoint you? Honestly, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it surprised me, I think. And maybe it was kind of naive to be surprised, really, because if I look back and see like the amount of support that this, that the UR community provides, like maybe I should have expected these phenomenal amounts of outpouring, but yeah, I was totally surprised, humbled. In the first day of the fundraising, we raised almost $30,000. And that was just like a really cool thing to see people showing up and then buying the stuff that they're not going to get for a few months. And, um, 
really just doing it because they believe in what I'm doing. So yeah, that I was definitely surprised. Our last launch um, quadrupled my goal. So yeah, I'm I'm like super blown away by all the support. It's pretty wild. So That's where amazing. did I forgot to ask you this? Where did the the name your Y O U E R come from? How did that? How did that? You know, magically, uh, you know, uh, rise to the to the top of the food chain for your naming your business. Well, I knew that I wanted a made up word, and I didn't want an identifier at the end of it. So previously, I was kind apparel, not a made up word identifier at the end. I didn't want apparel. I wanted to be sort of be free of those constraints because I think at the end of the day, this brand isn't really even a clothing company. It's like a, in a, a company that's in the business of empowering people and creating this fun space to express yourself. And like clothes just happen to be the tool to do it. So I wanted to eliminate that. Um, and then I just started kind of thinking and brainstorming and doing all these writing exercises. And you is really sort of like the ultimate expression of you, more you, you are, and nobody is more you than you. And it sort of speaks to this ability to stand mm-hmm. up in the crowd and be exactly who you are. I thought it was very clever. When, and when I saw it as the new name of your company, I realized the, the permutations of, of the word and how that, that could be interpreted and used. And I thought it was very clever. The simpler, yeah. the better. And it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes, uh, you know, the most obvious is is always the best. And in this case, that seems to fit well. What do you think, Scott? I think it's, uh, I've always believed in Mallory and love the name and the name grew on me. She knows that the name grew on me, but it is. You didn't like it to start, I don't think, did you? I didn't understand it, but now having been with it for, wow, um, almost, was it like eight, 16 months? Something like that. Uh, it's, um, it's been um, 12 months? 11 months this week. Okay. It'll be so, a year next month. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's grown yeah. on me in an incredible way. And it's only you. Or I have Until Arnie brought up kind, I forgot that was the name. So there you go. Let's do this. Totally. Let's take a quick, a quick break. Our guest is Mallory Otariano. She is the founder of Ewer. And we will be back right after this. The Missoula Community Foundation is currently offering a free donor education series. Now through November 10th, the Missoula Community Foundation will host five virtual seminars. Learn about estate planning, donor advised funds versus private family foundations, retirement and plan giving, and more. This series will offer expert insight into policy changes that may impact your giving and ways your giving can be more impactful. To register for any of these free virtual seminars, go to missoulacommunityfoundation.org. When it comes to tools for any do-it-yourself project, beginners to experts appreciate quality products and knowledgeable customer service. The kind you get at a tool store, not a tool department. The tool guys at Montana Tool carry the best brands in the industry, including some Western Montana exclusives. Plenty of those accessory necessities, too. Be a lot more confident working on those projects with the right tools and the right advice from the right tool store. Montana Tool, 1908 North Avenue West, Missoula. All right, Arnie, we are back with our guest, Mallory Otariana from you. So now that we've gotten everybody excited about your product line and the things that you're doing in the company, how do they get a hold of you? How do they find you? Well, the place that I like to hang out the most, and I think the best place to understand what the brand is all about is on Instagram. And our handle there is shop Ewer. 
So S-H-O-P-Y-O-U-E-R. Uh, and then my website is where you can find all of our fun stuff. And that's shopyour.com. If you're in the Missoula area, we have retailers, uh, Bob Wards and Upcycled have our products proudly displayed. And it's a fun place to go check them out and try them on in person. And hopefully soon you'll be able to come shop at the universe, which is going to be our sort of interactive experiential production facility. Oh, so the facility, exciting. the facility has its own brand and name, the universe. Yeah, it does. Totally. Mallory, if so, our audience, we have a lot of business people in our audience. And if they have any interest in, in reaching out to you and how they can help or, or uh, lend assistance, how should they reach you through DM through um, email is probably the best. There's a contact form on our website, or you can head to hey at shopyour.com. That's H-E-Y at shopyour.com. That's a good email to reach us at. Perfect. Well, Mallory, you're a great guest as always. It was great catching up with you and hearing about all the excitement and the space that you're creating in your universe. <laughs> well, thanks, Arnie and Scott. You guys has you ask great questions. I enjoyed chatting with you. Fun well, as always. It's fun as always. Arnie, I will see you next week. Take care, Scott. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. 